We've been looking into the life of David, who is a biblical figure, but he's also an historical figure. Uh, We started out by looking at the anointing of David as a teenager, and he had to wait around until his predecessor, King Saul, either died or retired to become king. And what we find out through history is Saul dies on the battlefield, and David gets his turn to rule the kingdom of Israel. And what we're about to see in this story, David is no longer that youthful appearance of what he was when he fought the Goliath, uh, that giant, and he's about 50 years old, maybe going through a midlife crisis, not sure. He's older, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean to say that he's wiser. You know, the Bible never flatters its heroes. And what we're about to see and dive into is a man that has a heart of God, but he also has deep flaws. And if you feel like you're a man or a woman that has a life full of contradictions, where you're faith-filled one moment and then hell-bent the next, you can identify with David. You see, to this point in David's life, everything had gone well for him and smooth, and life was not complex, but maybe there was something about the power that he achieved as ruler of Israel Maybe there was something about the, the supremacy that he was in in a place of rule where he had a big head. Maybe it was the fame in his youth. But whatever it was, David was vulnerable and unaware of an unforeseen sin that was about ready to enter his life. But before we continue, let me define a word that we're going to use often today. That's the word sin. Let's talk about what it is and what it isn't. First off, sin is a spiritual crime. It's a spiritual crime. And just as governments have created laws so that they can dictate human behavior, God has also created laws, spiritual laws, so that we can have a definition of what perfection looks like, what is right, what is wrong, what is righteous, and what is unrighteous, perfection. And God has made it very easy for us to know what sin is and what it isn't. It's not complex. You see, Jesus was asked by a group of religious leaders this question, What is the greatest commandment that God has given us? And Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment is not all those 10, and it's not all those 600 that you're aware of. Let's just boil it down to two. Two ways to remember if it's sin or not sin. Are you loving God, and does this love your neighbor? And anything that doesn't do that misses the mark of sin. And that's really the the point that Jesus is getting at. Anytime we miss the mark of sin and don't hit the bullseye by loving God or loving people and becoming selfish in our motives, selfish in our words, selfish in our actions, well, every time we miss the mark, it hurts others, it hurts ourselves, and it hurts our relationship with God. And see, God gives us these commandments, not so that we'll have to live a life that is boxed in and unfreeing. God gives us these commandments so that we can live free so that he can instruct us as we, we head down life, so that we can live peacefully with others, and so that we can live at peace with God. However, sin is not temptation. Uh, temptation is the word test, literally. Uh, are you going to let sin win, or are you going to play it straight and do things God's way? And oftentimes, temptation looks beautiful, but it often, when given into, has very ugly consequences, You see, temptation is a a tool uh, Satan uses. He tries to entice you and disconnect us from loving God and loving others. And Satan uses that enticement to do what is evil. But anytime that we rise up over temptation and give in to God's will, it can prove our character and can also prove our deep commitment to God. King David, though, must have thought that he was above temptation. 
And that's really probably his most fatal flaw in today's story. He had this attitude that thought, I'm above it. I'm God's marked man. And that introduces us to his most historic downfall. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, it says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. He knew he was God's man and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. So David has this big head. I'm God's man. I'm God's marked man, and this kingdom is all mine, and I'm the one in charge. And in the very next verse, it says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. What did he do? Well, he got a big head, and he started to disobey God by taking on multiple wives. He let down his guard, and instead of pursuing the Lord, he decided to pursue his lust for women. Uh, By the way, men... And let me just say this as a cautionary tale. Your children are watching your behavior. They're learning your words. And they're going to one day demonstrate your actions. You see, it was Solomon, David's boy, that became king later. And you know what his fatal flaw was in life? He too had a lust for women that sometimes, actually many times, overran his pursuit for the Lord. David had allowed his faith become soft and He decided not to protect his heart from the daily temptations. He gave a back seat to God. He said, God, you sit in the back. My turn to drive. And he started to drive the road of life without God's guidance in it. And I think here's what he was thinking when he decided to sin and to give in to the temptations of life. He said, I'm God's man. God knows my heart. What does it matter? It's okay for me to have some vices in life because after all, I'm God's kid. I'm God's man. But what David was really doing was he was crumbling down the example of godly character and he was saying that he was the exception rather than the example to how to live for God. And while we don't really think this way, we live this out in this way. We think things like, I'm gonna hold on to this anger right now. I'm gonna hold on to this anger even though I know it's wrong. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pursue forgiveness. I mean, after all, I'm God's kid. He's gonna forgive me. Or this weekend, I'm going to go party, and I'm just going to get smashed because I need to unwind from work. I mean, if anybody knows, God knows that my job is stressful, and I need something like this to get that out of my mind. It's okay. God will forgive me. I mean, after all, I'm God's kid. Or how about, I'm going to lie to my boss. No big deal as to why I'm late. Just going to kind of lie because I'm already on probation, and if I get another mark, I'm probably going to be fired. And, And God knows I need this job, so... I'm God's kid. What does it matter? I'm going to be forgiven anyway. I might as well just push this little white lie out. I don't think we rationalize it that way. I don't even know if we think about it that way, but we certainly live our lives that way. And then David came across this this scene of, 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 of sensualness. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 on the screen. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the rooftop of the palace From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. Now listen, we're already been told that David has a harem full of women. He has a a bunch of multiple wives, and, and I guess that didn't quench his thirst, and so he has this quench for more, for more women. And that woman on top of the rooftop, her name was Bathsheba, and David's at his palace. He's just waking up from his afternoon nap, must be nice. He was supposed to be in battle, instead he was in bed. He's not the example anymore to his country. He's the exception. You see, kings went to battle with their men. 
But David is in bed, and he wakes up from his afternoon slumber, and his morals have become lax. He no longer sees himself as the example, but rather the exception. And more than likely, this wasn't the first sensual scene that he'd ever seen. He'd probably witnessed Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop before, and instead of turning away and focusing his attention somewhere else, he has to go back for a second look. Friends, lax morals will lead to low points in your life. Bathsheba lacked modesty. David, he lacked self-control. And Bathsheba, while she was beautiful, David took notice of her and he lusted for her. And the question is not what was so different about Bathsheba that stood out among his wives and his concubines. The question is, what had changed? What's so different now about David? Because this doesn't sound like the man that we once knew. This doesn't sound like the guy that once was a man after God's own heart. When tempted, David let down his guard and he willfully gave in. You know what we discovered in life is? Good habits. Good habits come and they're the result of resisting temptation. Bad habits come when we cave into them. And David had multiple chances to walk away from this sensual scene and not to dive into the lust and to stay pure. But he followed his lust instead of pursuing the Lord. And so it says in 2 Samuel, so David sent someone to inquire of her. And he said, that someone, the servant said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now I love what his servant has to say back to, to David. David, listen, this is someone else's wife. You shouldn't be fooling around with her. My king, you're about to do something incredibly stupid here. You know, David had all these moments to halt his pursuit of her. And do you know when you're most, most likely to be giving into the temptations in your life? Do you know when the times are that you're more than likely going to give into the temptations of your life? Well, psychologically, we're more willing to drop our morals and cave into our temptations when we're either hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Do you know that about yourself? That the times when you're more willing to rush into the temptations that overwhelm you are when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, or when you're tired. You know, it's been proven that the quickest way to find sobriety and to remain in that state is to remove the people, the places, and the things that always dial up the temptation. You know what David did? He didn't do any of that. He didn't halt. He wasn't aware of himself. He didn't cut out the people, places, and things in his life. And he certainly didn't listen to the the influences in his life that were saying, beware, don't go down this road. No, he threw all the warning signs away. And he didn't have a care what God wanted of him. He wanted Bathsheba more than he wanted God. And this sensual scene kind of unfolds to this rooftop entrapment where this woman who is married and this man who are married decide they're no longer going to keep their vows to their spouses and they're going to they're going to be seduced by sin. And then it says David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Afterward, she returned home. And while this entire scene is sad, perhaps the saddest line is that That last sentence right there. Afterward, she returned home. David just used her for momentary pleasure. He had his fill of her, and then he sent her on her way. This is the way Satan works. 
Satan always shows us this excitement. He shows us uh, the fun, but never the sadness. He shows us the joys, but never the consequences of our sinning. Let's be, let's be realistic about sin for a minute. Sin is pleasurable. If sin were painful, we wouldn't want anything to do with it. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 25, talks about <coughs> a hero in the faith named Moses. And it says about him, he chose to be mistreated, Moses did, along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The Bible acknowledges that. Sin, at times, can be pleasurable. I mean, if it were painful, we wouldn't be involved. But you know what sin is like? It's like mud. It's easy to get into, but it's difficult to get out of. It's easier to get into a bad relationship than it is to get out of one, isn't it? It's easier to get addicted than it is to break the addiction. It's easier to lie than it is to unwind the lie and to tell the truth. You know, when the Bible talks about sin, it uses terms like entanglement, that we're entangled to it. It uses words like entrapment, that we're trapped by it. It uses words like stuck. And some of you today, you're in sin and you feel stuck, like you can't get out of it. You're in too deep, and no amount of wiggling is going to help. You know, there's a lot of problems in our life, and a lot of those problems start because we just want instantaneous pleasure. I think the main reason why sin is so, get, so easy to get into is because we want instantaneous pleasure. We want it now. We don't think of the future consequences in the present time. Think of what Satan was offering David that day on the rooftop. Momentary pleasure, and David didn't think about the long-term problems that would be associated with that sin. You see, what Satan does is he shows the extreme fun of Saturday night, but he doesn't show this, the hangover on Sunday morning. He shows the drugs that will relieve the pain today, but he never shows the cravings that will be intense tomorrow. He shows the pleasure that can be had with no strings attached in the evening, but he never shows you the hurt and the brokenheartedness and the guilt of the next morning. He shows you the justified anger, but he never shows you the bruises or the wounded hearts that exist and stay in your life. And what David did was, he made a decision on 40 minutes of pleasure that will cost him the next 40 years of his life. He made an irreversible choice based on resistible emotions. He put his feelings before his future. And that led to this, this panicked plan. Bathsheba later announces to David, I'm pregnant. Now, if you've ever heard those words in a married relationship, those are typical phrases that, that just ooze with joy, but when there's sin involved, it became an enormous dread for David. And so they concoct this plan David says, I'm bringing your husband home, Uriah from the battlefield, in the attempt that he's been so lonely that he'll sleep with Bathsheba, and I can play this off like this is, this is Uriah and Bathsheba's kid, and no one will know, but Uriah has such high character. When he comes home from the battlefield, he doesn't sleep with his wife. He doesn't go home and lay with her in bed. Actually, he lays in front of the palace to protect his king. So the scheme doesn't work. So he comes up with this murderous maneuver, David does. And Uriah is sent to the front lines, knowing full well that when he gets there, the fighting will be so intense that Uriah will be struck down and killed. 
and he dies. He dies at the handwritten note that David sent along with him. David, David had charged, is charged with that murder. And David and Bathsheba, well, without knowing it and without thinking too much about it, they kind of click, they, they have this like careless cover-up that they're involved in. And I think, I think for most of us, uh, the, it's the cover-up rather than the sin that causes the most trouble. It's the cover-up. It's all the lies. It's all the deceit. It's all the dumb things that we do just to cover the sin. If we would have just come clean and unstuck ourselves from that mud, it would have been a lot easier Here's their cover-up. You ready? They marry. He thinks it's going to blow over. When the time of mourning had ended, the scriptures say, that was the time of mourning for Uriah, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And everyone thought, wow, what a sympathetic king. David was thinking, that if I just take the widow Bathsheba in, people will think, what a good guy. And, and now he's going to father this child that's not even, this is wonderful. But no, the, the sin became exposed quickly because everyone in Israel could count to nine. And the scripture says about all these sins and all this cover-up, what God has to say about it. It says, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Check out that word, however. It's important in the scriptures. It states that David thought he made his sins right. You ever done that? You see, he thought, if I marry her, if I father this kid, I can bury all this terrible stuff I did, this cover-up stuff. I can keep this sin private, and I can just go on with life. But see, what he did was he committed spiritual crimes. And while he might have been able to hide that from the public, he couldn't hide that from God. Friends, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You will reap what you sow. So, if you plant obedience, you'll harvest a blessing. If you plant disobedience, you're going to harvest punishment. And David, he thinks he's gotten away with it. No apparent remorse. He doesn't seem to be convicted of his sins at all. That is until a good friend of his named Nathan comes and knocks on the door and says, David, you and I, we need to talk, buddy. I've counted to nine. I've figured this out. And David has a buddy named Nathan. And this guy, this is this part of the story that I'd love for you to open up to. Second Samuel chapter 12. Nathan is a national preacher. He's kind of like the Billy Graham of his time. And he knocks on the palace door during one of the darkest and uh, most emotional times in David's life. And I want you to see how gently, and as a close friend, Nathan, slowly exposes the sin in David's life that are hidden. And then I want you to see how David responds to this confrontation. And then his only a trusted friend can... Nathan speaks on God's behalf, and here's what he said. We're at 2 Samuel 12, verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Nathan asked. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. 
Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And by the way, David's life from then forward was filled with the abuses between he and his kids. His son tried to overthrow him and have a coup within the ruling of Israel and life became a mess for him. It gets even worse in verse 11. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm gonna bring calamity on you. Before your eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who's close to you. And by the way, that did happen. One of his sons took some of his wives and slept with them. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight, meaning everybody will know about it. It will be your shame. Verse 12, you did it in secret, but I will do these things in broad daylight before Israel. You know what God said? Because you didn't want to come clean, I'm going to expose this because that's the only way you're going to get clean. But let me introduce to you why David is a man after God's own heart. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't say, no, you're wrong. And continue the cover-up. He didn't say that's only partially true. And try to make himself look better. He admits it. I've sinned against the Lord. And what we find in David is a willingness to admit his sin and repent of it. And then Nathan replies with this bitter, sweet message from the Lord in verse 13, about midway through. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's sweet. You're not gonna die. That's sweet. But because by doing this, you've showed utter contempt for the Lord, your son will die. To David's credit, I mean, to David's credit, he claims God's forgiveness and, re and repents. To David's credit, he even claims God's consequences and walks forward with God in his life. And you're thinking, well, that seems so harsh. I mean, is that really the penalty for our sins is death? Why would God allow a baby boy to die? Well, actually, if you read beforehand in chapter 12, you'll find that that David pronounced this own sentence on himself. When Nathan had asked him, what punishment should be brought to a man who has taken what was not rightfully his? David says, the man who has taken what wasn't rightfully his should be killed. And God says, I'm not gonna kill my anointed. I'm not gonna kill David. And in God's wisdom, and I can't, I can't figure this out, but in God's wisdom, he decides your son will pay the price for your sins. Fathers, I'm not coming with a stern warning today to you, but what you do matters. Exodus 20 is filled with this verbiage. The sins of the father will be repeated to one generation, to the next, to the next. So dads, men, we carry probably the majority of the pride in this room. It's time to drop it and get ourselves unstuck from this mud, the sin, the consistency of sin that perhaps we're in and break free from it. Tragically, David's son dies because of the sins of the father. Okay, so that's the story. What do we learn from this? What's the application? Well, what is an everyday disciple like us? What are we gonna gain from what we just heard? Here's the first thing. We all have a plank in our eye. All of us, we all have a plank in our eye. Jesus had taught us concerning sin, 
Why do you look for the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, I'm not going to have a show of hands here, but while I was retelling the story of David and his sin with Bathsheba, how many of you were thinking of your own sins or were you thinking about the sins of someone else in your life? Because our tendency is to overlook our own faults and fixate on the faults of others. We do that because, well, it just makes us feel better about ourselves. Well, we're not as bad as so-and-so, and we start to compare others, but comparison puts the focus on the wrong person. And what sin does, it causes an irritation in our life. And we can, even, we can either pull out the plank and stop the irritation, or we can just decide to live with it. And Christians, that irritation for you is called conviction. You ever been convicted before? Conviction's not guilt, it's not shame. Conviction is when you know I've done wrong, but God has given me the availability to do what is right. It's not just being wrong and being shamed by it. It's being wrong and knowing that God can do something right through you and you never want to go back to it. But non-Christians, guilt is placed on them. Most non-Christians experience guilt. It makes them feel terrible. They, they feel that they can never change. Guilt creates shame and disgust within us. God uses conviction. Satan uses guilt. And when it comes to our sin in our life, there are really only two options. Option number one, you can forgive you can ask God for forgiveness, and of all your spiritual crimes, you can accept Jesus, that he took those crimes and took the punishment for your sins, and you can change, repent, have a change of heart, change of mind, and come back to God. Or two, you can do like David had planned to do, like David had planned to do, and try to get away with it, to sweep it under the rug, to not repent to not come clean from his sins, to not rededicate himself to the Lord, just to hide within it. And if you continue to hide in your sin, I think ultimately you're gonna be consumed by guilt. You know, David felt that way. Here's what he wrote when he tried to hide his sin with Bathsheba. He said, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. Like the spiritual stuff started to affect the physical stuff. And I groaned all day long, day and night. I had a hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Now listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a daily disciple in this room, and yet you have a willingness to continue to sin, and not to get unstuck from it, but to stay entangled by it, you are looking forward to a slow fade, a slow disconnect from God. And, and let me just kind of, Tell you how that slow fade, that slow disconnect start if you're gonna stay consumed in your sin and not repent of it today. You start to lose your identity. You know what your identity is? You're a follower of Jesus. You're forgiven and you're saved. And the longer you stay in sin, the more you start to forget that. You start to lose your identity. You start to forget you're saved. You, forgot, you start to forget you, you, you're forgiven. You lose your heredity. That's who you belong to. You see, the prodigal son forgot this when he was in the open country. And some of you are already at that stage. You've forgotten who you belong to. You're a child of God, but you don't consider yourself that anymore. It's hard for you to walk back in this place and get connected to God-filled people. And then you lose your dignity. I mean, you keep a sin hidden so long, ultimately you're gonna believe that that's who you are. You're a sinner who doesn't deserve grace. You're not a child of God any longer. And when you lose your dignity, ultimately what you lose is your meaning and purpose in life. You forget who you're living for. And forget even why you're living. And then that slow disconnect ultimately lands in losing your destiny. See, you were destined to live for God and one day live with God, but you've allowed sin to win. And you've given up the birthright 
of being a child of God and you've never returned back home to the open waiting arms of the Father and it's a slow fade, it's a slow disconnect. And you say, well, come on, it's not instantaneous. No, it's a slow fade. Some of you don't even know where you're fading at right now. Stay in sin long enough, Satan's gonna get a foothold. Isn't that what the scriptures teach us? The longer you give sin an opportunity in your life, Satan's gonna have a greater grip in our life. You keep on sinning, you keep willfully sinning, consistently sinning, Satan's gonna have a greater grip in your life. Makes sense to me. What else do we learn from David's sinful story? Well, godly friends are important to overcome sin. Look, Nathan spared David some greater shame and a slow disconnect from God. If you don't have godly people in your life, I'm talking about faith-filled friends, then you need to get some. You need to get some. Small groups, Bible fellowship classes, these are important ways in which you can connect, get connected to, some, to start some new faith-filled friendships. And it starts get, by getting involved with people in this congregation. You remove yourself from this group, more than likely you're gonna start to experience that slow disconnect if you continue to willfully sin. You know, I've got some people that are close in my life. There are few of them, but I've got some people that are close to me in my life, including my, my wife, my elders, and at any time, I would take it from them if they said, Matt, we see this speck in your eye, and it's not God-honoring. We want to help you remove it. Now, if I heard that from my close friends, that might wound me, but I would trust them. Now, if someone were just to come to me who I don't know well, I'd probably see you as a troublemaker and not a peacemaker. You know, the scripture says it like this, the slap of a friend can be trusted to help you. But the kisses of an enemy are nothing but lies. So let me give you a few questions that you maybe need to ask yourself. If you're thinking of a friend that you need to confront in the faith that is willfully sinning. And while you remember you've got the plank in your eye, you're seeing the speck in theirs. First, you need to ask the question, is what I'm hearing true? That's what David asked, or that's what Nathan asked David, rather. Hey, David, I've heard a rumor um, and hopefully you can set the record straight. Maybe you can make this right. Second, is this the right time? You know, I've had some friends in my life that I wanted to confront in their sin, but I could never get past my own anger, and I knew I would approach it in the wrong way, so somebody else had to take the lead. Third, have I chosen my words wisely? You see, what you need to start to do is build your sentences around words that you want to use, words like help, restore, love, unconditional, grace, forgiveness, trust, Think through your words and the words that need to be said, not just what you want to say. Fourth, am I correcting with compassion? Now, I've got to recognize this. I've got a plank in my own eye. I'm trying to take out the speck of, in, in, of sawdust in my brother's eye. I need to remember that we all sin differently, that we're all tempted in different ways, and we're all vulnerable to sin. And if not but grace, there go I. So what do we learn from David's sinful story? A third thing, you can be restored if you're willing to repent of sin. You can get out of the mud. It's, it's not that complicated. It requires repentance. God, I wanna change my mind to change my behavior and I'm gonna start living for you. Repentance is the process of changing your mind and then eventually the behavior starts to change with it. You know, my TV set at home, we have uh, some factory settings on the picture mode. So when you turn on the TV, it goes to the factory settings of the picture mode, and then you have to switch through which one you want. Vivid, do you want the standard, do you want the enhanced? And it never looks clear to me, ever looks clear to me, and so I'll go in and I'll rearrange the picture settings from the default setup 
but I'll always forget to save it. So I turn off the TV, and then when I turn it back on, boom, the default turns right back on to where it was, and I have to go back in, and I have to change it every time. You know, in spiritual terms, in theological terms, changing the default is called repentance. Our default setting is this inclination to sin. Our default setting is this inclination to rebel against God. Our default setting is selfishness. And repent means to make a decision to change the default and be saved to God's image. So what does that look like when someone repents? What does it look like when you repent or a friend repents? Well, let's look at what true repentance is as we close. Number one, it's an open admission to the speck or sin in my life. That's what David did, right? Nathan, you're right. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against God. I admit that I'm wrong. It's a willingness to break free from sin. I'm not going to continue down this road anymore. No way. I'm done with it. No turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. There's a brokenness and a humility due to the disconnect and the pain that my sin has caused. You see, tears are not enough to change you. I've met so many people that were still crying, but they were lying. They thought the tears, the remorse would change them. No, broken people have a broken spirit because they've recognized that they've broken others, not just themselves. And then there's a willingness to face the consequences of sin in a godly way. Every sin has a consequence. Some are more glaring, some are bigger, some are more trying than others. David was willing to say, I will go through the consequences, but I'm gonna let God navigate me through them this time. And then last claiming of God's forgiveness and a reinstatement. I love what David does. He claims God's forgiveness and he claims the reinstatement as his kid and he waited patiently on God to change him and renew him and to give him a restoration. You know what David, you know what God says rather about our sins? Here's what he says about our sins. He has removed our sins from us. He has removed them as far as east is from the west. He's taken your sin and he has removed them from you. And if you think I'm talking to you today, I am. Actually, God is. Some of you do not have a Nathan in your life. I would say the majority of you in this room don't. And it has been my prayer this last week that this sermon has become your Nathan. As you started to think about the sin in your life, hopefully you can use me as a trusted friend with God's spirit so that he can say, just hold on a minute. Let me grab this speck. But for that to happen, you have to be willing. And I'm asking you today to repent, to change your mind, to start pursuing God, to give up that sin, to come back into the forgiveness and be reinstated as God's child. And if that's you today, I want to meet with you. I'm going to be right here by this baptistry. There'll be some ministers by this baptistry. Move into a back room where we can talk and be at peace and not have this crowd staring at us. But if God's been talking to you today, you need to do something about it. Let's stand together. Let's sing this song of invitation as you respond to God in your life.